Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. And one time, midwives were part of pregnancy and birth in America until there was a shift to professionalized medicine when doctors took the lead in obstetric care. Midwifery is slowly becoming embraced again, and a new report in PLOS One, a peer-reviewed scientific journal, finds the U.S. states that give midwives a bigger role in patient care, they see better health outcomes for mothers and babies. Coming up, we'll talk with ProPublica reporter Nina Martin, who reported on this. First, recent figures from the federal government show addiction has naturally impacted a parent's ability to care for his or her children. Multiple states are seeing increases in the number of kids entering the foster care system. What's the best way to help parents and their children without breaking up homes? You can join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we'll find out about a program run by Connecticut's Department of Children and Families and the Yale Child Study Center to keep kids with their parents when the adults are committed to recovery. First, let's find out more about how addiction is impacting the foster care system nationwide. On the phone with me now is Sherry Lockman, founder and executive director of Foster America. Sherry, welcome to where we live. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've been hearing, we've seen statistics from uh, the federal government that, again, the, the number of children entering the foster care system um, is growing in recent years. Uh, in your organization, Foster America, uh, what are you hearing um, from states and what are the causes? What we're hearing is that the problem is much worse than most people think. So actually, child abuse and neglect is quite prevalent in our country. One in eight children in our country, one in eight, are abused or neglected by the time they turn 18. And when this happens, our government child welfare system steps in and either provides services to the families to help keep the kids at home or places kids in foster care. What we're also seeing is that the problem is getting worse. So after a decade of decline, with regard to the number of kids going into foster care, over the past four years, we've seen a spike in these numbers. In Montana, for example, the number of children in foster care has doubled since 2010. In Georgia, it's increased by 80%, and in West Virginia, by 45%. And what we see based on federal data and based on what we're hearing from our child welfare agency partners on the ground is that drug abuse is one of the major reasons for this spike, and in particular, within the past few years, opioids. So in 2016, for example, almost 100,000 kids came into foster care because of parental drug use. In studio with me is Elizabeth Durier. She's the Connecticut Department of Children and Families Chief of Staff. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. We're hearing a little bit about the, the national statistics on the foster care system. Uh, what has, when we look at Connecticut's system, how many children are in the foster care system? And are you tracking, how, what have you noticed in terms of substance abuse being one of the factors where a child is removed? Well, substance use is is really a, a very prevalent, you know, phenomenon. And as, as Sherry mentioned, you know, nationally, we also see this playing out in Connecticut 
Um, given some of the trends that we've seen, uh, again, sort of reflective of these ebbs and flows in terms of the number of kids coming into care, uh, where where we started in 2011 uh, with roughly um, 4,200 kids in care at our low point uh, in 2013, we we were down to around 3,900, but we're now seeing that uptick coming up again. Where we're uh, as of December, we had about 4,200 kids again, and what we're um, what we're really trying to do is is avoid you know removing kids and substance use obviously presents a lot of safety considerations when families are referred to the department um, when substance use is when there is some indication of substance use we really have to do a lot to screen and assess you know what are the services that we can put in place in an effort to keep that family together um, because we know, you know, removing kids and putting them in the foster care system should really be a last resort. Now, coming up, we're going to talk more about a specific program that um, DCF uh, launched with the help of the Yale Child Study Center with that goal of keeping families together. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to find out more about how that uptick in numbers, Elizabeth, how is that straining? Is it putting a strain on the system to date? How do you handle that when the numbers are going up? Well, obviously, with uh, our fiscal constraints for Connecticut as a state, everyone's budget, uh, not just DCFs, but our, our partner agencies, DEMAS, Department of Social Services, I think we're all feeling the crunch. And where we might want to expand services really becomes a challenge. And we've had to look at ways in which we can be a little bit more innovative. And I think the program we're going to talk about, we'll get into some of that, but how can we get out? How can we do that thinking outside of our box and how who are the new partners we need to engage and how can we more meaningfully collaborate with existing partners to sustain existing programs uh, that we know are working, but also, you know, potentially add some new programs where we see those emerging. Uh, Sherry Lockman, again, founder and executive director of Foster America. You mentioned some of the states where uh, an uptick in, in the foster care system related to the opioid crisis. How is that putting, how are states handling that, um, that strain on their resources? What's happening to these kids? Hmm. Well, state child welfare systems are completely overwhelmed. So what you're actually seeing on the ground is, for example, kids sleeping in their social workers' offices because there aren't enough foster homes available to take in this influx of kids. You see kids being shipped off to prison-like group homes and residential treatment facilities, which are essentially like modern-day orphanages because there are not enough families to take them in. And what we know from both research and from common sense is that the gray walls of institutions are not healthy environments in which to raise children. That's not where they get the unconditional love to develop into healthy adults. So essentially what we're seeing is a perfect storm. Just as the number of kids coming into foster care is dramatically rising, partly as a result of the opioid crisis. At the same time, we see, based on new research from the Chronicle of Social Change, that in at least half the states, the number of foster homes over the past few years, including in Connecticut, has been decreasing. 
This is where we live. Today we're talking about how substance abuse in the nation, including the opioid epidemic, is impacting the foster care system. Um, on the phone with me again, Sherry Lockman from Foster America. In studio with me, Elizabeth Durier. Uh, she's chief of staff with the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. Uh, now, Sherry, we know uh, there's a lot of attention in recent years to the opioid epidemic. It's not the first drug crisis this, uh, this country has faced. When we look back to what happened in the 80s um, with the crack epidemic and uh, any lessons that we can that we can learn from that, and what was the impact on on children then and now? That comparison is really important. So back in the seventies, eighties, and early nineties, the crack cocaine epidemic tore through communities, including many African American communities, and. The reaction to that epidemic was unfortunately, and I think partly because of racism, it was far less compassionate than the reaction now to the opioid crisis. And what that meant is that instead of treating parents as if they had a health issue with substance use uh, back in that crisis, parents were criminalized and thousands of children were ripped out of their homes. And because that was the response, our country failed to build the extensive infrastructure needed to help families and their children when their parents are facing substance use issues. And as a result of that, we don't have the infrastructure today to help families who are facing different types of substance use issues, such as opioids. Now, there are some bright spots across the country, and there are unsung heroes in programs like family-based recovery, which I know you'll be featuring later on in the show today. But those bright spots are unfortunately isolated. Those bright spots show that it is possible to help parents overcome substance use challenges and to keep kids and families together, to reunite kids with families in those extremely challenging circumstances, but because we as a country have not prioritized these kids and families and have not fully understood the extent to which substance use is a health problem that should be treated like other health problems, we don't have enough of these uh, programs. We haven't brought programs like family-based recovery to scale in order to respond in the most effective way to each substance use epidemic facing our country. We're talking about how substance abuse is impacting the foster care system nationwide. When we look at the opioid crisis in recent years, Sherry, um, is this problem growing at such a rate that you're not able to see public funding streams matched to to try to solve uh, these issues? That is a a solvable problem. Uh, This is a national crisis, and the funding does not match the level of need by any means, but we, we, we can do better. We, we do see states like Connecticut actually addressing this challenge, not just with funding, but also with smart policy and smart administrative action. So, for example, Dave Wilkinson, who leads the Office of Early Childhood, and Joette, who, Joette, who leads the Department of Children and Families have been collaborating together to figure out how do you work 
across sectors in order to identify kids and families at risk earlier on from a number of challenges, including substance use, and then collaborate in order to give those families the services they need and keep kids out of the foster care system when possible in the first place. I want to thank Sherry Lockman, founder and executive director of Foster America. Again, it's a nonprofit focused on improving the child welfare system. Sherry, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me, Elizabeth Durier, Chief of Staff for the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. Coming up, we're going to talk more about the family-based recovery program created by DCF and partners at the Yale Child Study Center and John Hopkins University. Do you have experience with Connecticut's child welfare system? What kinds of programs are needed to help parents with addiction issues? Join the conversation. Email Where We Live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today, we, we want to talk about a, a family-based treatment program created by the Connecticut Department of Children and Families and Yale's Child Study Center. The idea is to help parents who have substance abuse issues while keeping the family intact. Uh, we're talking about this today because uh, federal figures show that many states are seeing uh, a rise in the number of children entering the foster care system because of substance abuse issues in the home. Um, before we uh, learn more about the family-based recovery program and uh, plans to expand it. I wanted to take a, a listener phone call. Joe's calling from South Windsor. Joe, go ahead with your question or comment. Sure. I took in my first two foster children through Casey Family Services in 1985. They were siblings born to a drug-addicted mom, and I've watched through two generations now how uh, the system has failed not only those two children, but the children born to them. I watched each of those two children lose two children into the system, and I adopted two of them to keep them out of the system. Um, And the fundamental problem that I see with our foster care system is that supports disappear when the child ages out at age 18. And that's when the child is most susceptible to become drug addicted himself or herself but they, because they've been through what they've been through, are not going to be mature individuals until they're sometime in their 30s. And that gap of services from the time they age out at 18 until they grow up sometime around 30 is when they give birth to a couple of more children in their own drug addiction. And then the state rushes in to grab those children, threatening the parents with charges of neglect and abuse that all go away if they sign their children away. 
and nobody deals with their own drug addiction. And that's been my frustration for two generations. And I'll listen to your comments off the air. Well, thank you, Joe, uh, for your call. Um, Elizabeth Durier is in studio with us. Again, she's chief of staff for the Department of Children and Families. I mean, how do you respond to Joe's concerns um, about how there is a gap? And we'll learn more about, again, uh, there is a, a strategy that's been in place for several years uh, to try to, to not have the children even enter the foster care system to begin with. But sometimes that happens. So uh, there's some consequences to that, that, uh, that chain of events. Can we talk about uh, some of Joe's concerns, Elizabeth? Uh, absolutely. And, and I, I appreciate his call. And unfortunately, uh, the, the complaints and the issues that he's raised are um, all too frequent uh, and, and do reflect, you know, why the system needs to rethink the way in which we're engaging families and, and what are we doing to invest in services that will help avert uh, kids growing up in foster care, aging out, you know, with with few supports. And um a lot of that is about money, um, and I know we've we've touched on that briefly this morning. And where we can, you know, get those federal funding uh, supports in, um, you know, it's not all about money though. It is really about how are we effectively engaging families and meeting them where they're at, and supporting our foster parents, and putting in place those supports that we know they need. And uh, given the uptick we're seeing of kids coming into care, we, we need more foster families. And that number sort of calibrates as we see, you know, more referrals coming into the department, you know, where there's the opioid crisis or other contributing factors. Uh, but that the recruitment of, of foster families is is a constant, constant, uh, you know, need that we have. I also think that uh, the department has really done a lot to invest in services that allow for us to keep kids with their families, provide those wraparound supports um, in an effort to avert that trajectory, which which we see in Connecticut. We also see nationally where this, there becomes this multi-generational involvement with child welfare. But, you know, it's not just about child welfare. It's really about the human service system as a whole. And we see, you know, uh, correlation to housing instability and unemployment and, you know, substance use and other behavioral health disorders and that it really does require a holistic approach across, you know, many different agencies and many different sectors. And that's where um, I'm hopeful, uh, as Sherry mentioned uh, in her comments, where there are some bright spots that we can, in spite of our fiscal constraints, think, you know, in different ways to engage families. And, and I think that the, the success or what we're excited about with family-based recovery in this expansion is we've had to engage some unconventional partners like philanthropy and how can we get philanthropy to push government to think outside, you know, what has just been, you know, sort of funding the same old services year in and year out. And um, we have a lot more work to do there. So I, I appreciate I appreciate Joe's calls and the issues that we need to be attentive to. Let's uh, find out about one of uh, these holistic programs, right? So not just uh, focusing on, on taking breaking up a family because uh, they may be struggling with addiction. Since 2006, uh, there's been a, a program. Uh, it's called Family-Based Recovery. I wanted to find out more about it. In studio with us now, Karen Hansen, director of the Family-Based Recovery Service program at the Yale Child Study Center. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thank you for letting us talk about this innovative program. So it's been around, again, since 2006. Uh, this is a program you helped develop mm -hmm. with DCF. Uh, can you describe, you know, what was the catalyst? Why were you thinking about 
this particular way of, of, of helping families? Actually, DCF was the catalyst for the development of the model. Um, they were recognizing that in the early 2000s, there was an uptick in children being placed in foster care and really trying to determine what was the reason those children were being placed. And one of the things, the common factors was parental substance use. And so the department approached Johns Hopkins University that had an evidence-based substance use treatment program, reinforcement-based therapy, and the Child Study Center, which had an in-home treatment program for parents who use substances and young children. And the three parties came together. And within seven months, we developed family-based recovery and launched it at the Yale Child Study Center. And then it's since been replicated across the state with um, 16 other teams doing the model. And what makes us innovative is we're taking substance use treatment and individual psychotherapy into the home, into the family's home, to break down barriers. A lot of families don't have transportation or childcare that allows them to access traditional resources. In addition to the substance use treatment, we're providing infant mental health care to the parent and to the parent-child dyad. And we're working with families with children zero to three. And so when the caller talked about how he had seen this happen in two generations, my hope would be that in now, because we've had the expansion of FBR across every city in the state, that families like his would have access to the services to prevent the children from being removed from the home and to actually work with the parent. One of the things that we have found so unique about this program is that we treat not men and women, we treat moms and dads. And the opportunity to parent that baby, that infant, that young child is a huge motivator for change. Can I just uh, interject, you know, some people might be listening and thinking, you know, if somebody's using drugs, is it a good idea to keep that child in the home? How do you how do you decide who is the right candidate for this? Well, actually, all of our referrals come from the Department of Children and Families. We work in a partnership and a collaboration. And certainly, safety of the child is paramount for all of us. But we also recognize that attachment is critical for healthy development. And removing a child is not necessarily always in their best interest. Each parent who uses substances um, needs to be thought of as a unique family unit. And we need to assess for safety and risk constantly. Um, we put safety plans in place so that the parent is not actively using when they're parenting that child, that they get a sober caregiver in place. We're always looking out for what's in the child's best interest. But we recognize that not every substance use episode is the same. And if the parent makes appropriate healthy choices for their children, that the opportunity for that child to, uh, to have form a secure attachment with that parent um, is part of the process. And the first 18 months of your life is critical for setting up future success. And so we really don't want to have that rupture if we can prevent it. And I have to tell you how many parents have said to us, if my child was removed, I probably would continue using. But because I have this child now and because I'm a mom, my child deserves better for me. And I'm going to stop using because I have this child. Elizabeth Durier, Chief of Staff for uh, Connecticut's DCF. We know that recovery is a lifelong process. So you have maybe a parent or parents involved with the family-based uh, recovery program. What happens when they relapse? Well, obviously, there there is uh, a lot of dependency on the individual case. And I think Karen hit on a really important point that it is our duty to meet each each family that we are working with, where, wherever they're at in their recovery process. And, and we recognize that recovery is a lifelong process and that relapse, you know, unfortunately is, is a fairly, you know, natural part of that journey. And so what, what we opt to do and through family-based recovery and, and even our own work with the families is 
the the relapse should not be an automatic trigger again for removal for filing a court petition but really trying to figure out you know is there a safety concern present that that can be mitigated with services with supports uh, that that will allow for us again to avoid that knee-jerk reaction that we've often seen and and Karen mentioned when um, you know family-based recovery was first implemented in 2006 that was really at a high point or, or that that far pendulum swing where we were seeing, you know, a lot of kids in care. There were over 7,000 kids in care. We're now around 4,200. And we at the department, and I know with, with our partners, both at Yale Child Study uh, and, and throughout the state have really tried to, um, you know, build a more robust array of in-home services that allow for us to avoid that traditional knee-jerk reaction we often have historically seen in child welfare to remove kids. Uh, someone with uh, some on-the-ground experience in this family-based recovery services program we're talking about today on Where We Live is Heidi Veltheim. Uh, she's a senior clinician with the program. She's on the phone. Heidi, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, we were hearing uh, Karen mention how it's very, very important uh, to be able to provide these services to families in their home. Um, you're, you've been doing this for five years now. Uh, tell us about what the work you're doing. So, yes, it's a very innovative program um, where we are able to literally and figuratively meet the clients where they are. Um, Being able to bring this treatment to their home is an amazing experience um, for them and for us as the staff of the programs. Um, And it's just, you know, it's, it's great to be able to see some of the progress that we are able to see with the families. We're with them for anywhere from six to nine months, sometimes even a little longer than nine months. So we really get to see a lot of struggles and a lot of successes in that time. We were, I had the question about what happens when a, a, an individual might relapse. Uh, does that, um, you know, tri- uh, Elizabeth had mentioned it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to remove the child from the home at that particular point. I mean, how do you work with that uh, with your clients? Uh, because we know that uh, it's, it is difficult to be in recovery and it, it is a lifelong process. Sure, right. And we we recognize that relapse is part of some people's recovery journey, not everyone, but some people. So if there is a is a disclosed relapse or or um we find out about a relapse through the urine screen, we do our best to really find out um where the child was, were they safe, work with the parent on what was going on for them, any internal triggers, any external triggers. Um, and we, we ask those questions, first of all, to, like as Karen said, to, you know, we're constantly assessing for safety and risk in the home, um, but also to hopefully create a plan with the client so that if relapse, um, so that hopefully relapse doesn't happen again, but if it does, how can everyone be safe during that time? We will, even in the moment, ask um, the client, we, ha- we have to notify DCF if there's been a relapse. Um, or if there's a positive urine screen. And so we offer to do that with the client in the home for not only for support for the client, but also to, you know, potentially answer any questions that the DCF worker might have about the conditions or the circumstances around the relapse. Karen Hansen, again, is with Yale Child Studies Center. She's in studio with me. Uh, this program has been around now for uh, about 10 years. How do you measure success? How, how, how does, when you look at this treatment option versus others that are out there? Um, so we measure success on a variety of different areas. We look at where the placement of the index child is at discharge 
and we have treated over 1,400 families in the state of Connecticut since we started this service, and 81% of those children are living with a biological parent at the time of discharge. We also look at parents, um, Heidi mentioned, toxicology screens. We do uh, toxicology screens at each visit, and we look at the course of treatment and the toxicology screens, and for um, we look at, we've seen that clients start with 50% of them have a positive toxicology screen at intake. It's down to 15% at the week 20, which we also measure as a positive success. Mm-hmm. We're also interested in parental well-being because it's not, a lot of our clients can say, I can stop using, but then I am left with trying to figure out how to live life in recovery. And many of them come with comorbid mental health issues, trauma histories. And so they really need to be able to deal with the psychological issues. So we measure parental depression, and we see statistically significant changes pre-post for parental depression. And we also look at parental stress, and we see the same statistically significant changes and decrease in stress for those parents. I think one of the exciting opportunities that we have right now that the department has set us up with, with other partners and the the philanthropic partners that we have and social finance um, out of Boston is the Pay for Success Project, which will allow, is allowing us to do a randomized control trial Mm -hmm. so that we can compare FBR to treatment in the community. Because in the past, there's only been 12 slots per team. And so families were randomized into FBR or not. It just wasn't sort of an established protocol. And now we're going to get a lot more data to see how effective we are. Um, But our internal data suggests that parents are doing better, they're feeling better, and their children are remaining with them, and they're not using substances. This is where we live today. We're looking at some programs that try to keep the family together despite substance abuse. Uh, We're learning about a family-based recovery services program that DCF and and Yale Child Study Centers uh, have been uh, doing for uh, more than a a decade now. And I understand, Elizabeth Durier, with DCF, there's now an expansion to this related to what we've been talking about is the opioid epidemic. Yeah, it it is it is an exciting project to talk about, and I think at its at its core, um, the we call it the Family Stability Project, which is a, a public private partnership that has allowed for us to work with family based recovery and expand that model um, to serve more families. So over the course of the Family Stability Project, uh, we will be serving an additional five hundred families throughout the state. Uh, it, I should say in specific areas of the state where our data reflected that we had unmet need relative to parent and caregiver substance use. And so the data on our end really informed, you know, if we have this opportunity that in spite of our budget crisis on the state level, this this pay for success finance tool gave us an exciting sort of grant-like opportunity to draw in some funding from outside of government uh, that we wouldn't otherwise have. And it also allowed for us to do that by engaging some unconventional as well as, you know, traditional partners. We've got a great network of uh, nonprofit providers throughout the state, and we're, we really have one of the most comprehensive service arrays of any child welfare system uh, around the country. But uh, getting philanthropy, getting the universities involved, you know, these are these are people who are grounded in research and can really help to inform uh, what are the services that we need to see more of? What is the research telling us? And, and FBR is very grounded in, in all of what best practice is and really pushing child welfare agencies to think uh, beyond what has been that traditional child welfare response where we're removing kids and we're putting them in foster care. And this the, adversarial uh, relationship. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and giving us a tool to engage families 
as you've heard all of us saying, meet them where they're at, you know, do it in a meaningful, collaborative way, uh, but also pulling in these unconventional partners. And of course, philanthropy joining through investing in this um, was a huge incentive because these are funds we wouldn't otherwise have to support this expansion. We just have a couple more minutes. I wanted to, uh, to fit in a, a call from a, a listener. Uh, Tammy's calling from Bristol. Tammy, go ahead. We just have a, a couple of minutes. Go ahead with okay. your question or comment. All right. Well, I just want to make a couple of comments. The opioid epidemic that you're talking about affects me because I'm on the opposite side of that coin. I need it daily for chronic pain. And I have an issue that will never go away. It's forever. And um, so I'm having a hard time getting my medication because of that. That's not fair to people like me. And I, I get it that there are addicts out there. I, the man I'm in love with is an addict on crack. And there's nothing I can do, and I feel helpless. And the second one is that with DCF, DCF rips families apart. They don't try to keep them together. I'm living proof. My daughter is 25. I have two. My youngest is 25, a paralegal, works for the city of Bristol, chose that direction because of what DCF did to our family. And she and I are both going to be going to the Capitol, and I already have a bill in place. I just got to get it passed so that the statute of limitations that are now up I can get them erased and pursue legally what needs to be done. Well, Tammy, I, I just wanted to let uh, Elizabeth Durier from DCF respond uh, to uh, your comments, because, again, we were talking uh, just before about this uh, longstanding adversarial uh, feeling in the community from some when they have child welfare involved in their families and how you address that. Well, Tammy, I, I, I am sorry to hear uh, about your experience, in, and I also recognize that, um, as, as Lucy mentioned, there's really no one who is going to want DCF in their home, and the department is, is conscious of that. And while I'm not familiar with the specifics of, of individual cases, uh, I can certainly speak to the fact that the way in which we're trying to reframe how we engage families in the communities and focus on keeping families together because families are a strength for the children who come to our attention. And they are a resource that we know uh, we, we need to support. And, and that is the direction of child welfare, not just in Connecticut, but also as Sherry touched on earlier in today's program, where we see this going nationally. And I think family-based recovery is one tool in our toolbox to do a better job. You mentioned the Family Stability Program, this new program being launched. Specific areas in the state, and when will it be on the ground? The, the new services have launched. They've launched in three areas of the state where we've seen a particular demonstrated need which we are correlating to, you know, you can look at the opioid deaths. Uh, so Litchfield County, for one? It's it's a DC, three of DCF's six regions, um, the, the northwest corner of the state, so Danbury, Waterbury, Torrington, the, the pretty much the whole entire eastern half of the state, which we know is very rural. Both of those areas are very rural. Um, we also know that we don't necessarily have uh, a, a lot of providers in, in those areas of the state. So this is an important support to our providers as well, where we're, we're able to bring in new resources to support you know their programs. And then the third area where we've scaled up is actually in New Haven. And what we haven't really touched on is through the Family Stability Project, um, we're, we're working with, with Karen and others at Yale Child Study to expand the model. Mm-hmm. So Karen's, uh, the family-based recovery is traditionally serve families with kids zero to three. 
and now through this family stability launch of services that that uh, began in 2016 and is now up and running, um, we're able to serve families with kids up to age six. So we'll have to have you back to find out how that's going down in New Haven. But we do appreciate uh, your time, and we have to leave it there, unfortunately. I want to thank Elizabeth Durier, Department of Children and Families Chief of Staff, and Karen Hansen, Director of the Family-Based Recovery Services Program at Yale Child Study Center. Also, senior clinician with that program, Heidi Veltham. Coming up, an update from a series ProPublica has been working on, looking at maternal health and death in the U.S. ProPublica reporter Nina Martin is back to talk about her story on the role of midwives and what impact they have on the outcomes of mothers and their newborns. Did you have a midwife during your pregnancy and delivery? Join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In August, we talked to ProPublica about a startling statistic. The U.S. has the highest rate of maternal deaths in the developed world due to pregnancy-related complications. ProPublica's investigation with NPR found that every day in America, on average, two to three women die from pregnancy-related causes, complications like preeclampsia, hemorrhage, and cardiac issues. And 60 percent of deaths could have been prevented. ProPublica reporter Nina Martin is back with us to talk about her reporting in the Lost Mothers series. It was a 2017 Investigative Reporters and Editors Award finalist. Her story focuses on the role of midwives and the results seen from Europe to U.S. states when midwives have a bigger role in a woman's pregnancy care. Did you have a midwife during your pregnancy? How did that care continue after you had your baby? Join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Nina Martin covers gender and sexuality for ProPublica. Nina, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about this study that looked at the rules surrounding uh, midwifery uh, published in this peer-reviewed scientific journal, PLOS. Um, I understand in a conversation with our producer, you described the study as groundbreaking. Why is that? Well, this is the first time that uh, researchers in the U.S. have been able to take a systematic look at uh, what midwives can do, um, are allowed to do, and are not allowed to do um, in the states where they practice, and then overlay that with data from the CDC and from other federal agencies looking at a range of indicators of neonatal and maternal health. So things like C-sections, infant mortality rate, the rates of breastfeeding, the rates of prematurity. Um, so this is, it's the first time that researchers have been able to do this. And what they have found is, on some level, not very surprising if you happen to be a longtime advocate of midwives or if you kind of understand the potential of what midwives can do in this country and what they do do in, abroad. And it basically found that in states that have the highest integration of midwives into their healthcare systems, 
they tend to do significantly better for um, on these measures of maternal and, fetal and infant health. And states that have some of the most restrictive policies and laws towards midwives tend to do significantly worse on key indicators. It's important to note, before we go much further, that the study is not saying that the ways that states do on these rankings of infant and maternal uh, health is directly related to midwives. They're basically saying that that midwives, that they don't do worse. And there are lots of other reasons that infant and maternal health may or may not be doing well in in an individual state, but midwives are potentially, uh, in states that don't have them, a really important resource that we should be tapping. Uh, When you're talking about other uh, factors that can impact uh, maternal uh, health as well as the uh, health of a baby, so chronic conditions, access to certain insurance or or Medicaid in a particular state, access to preventative medicine, all the things that can factor into the the outcome of 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 a woman and her baby? Exactly. And one of the things that that seems to be true is that states that have done um, the best toward integrating midwives often have maybe have a better um, relationships and sort of, uh, you know, between in the within the medical system, the overall medical system may be better integrated than states that have been the most restrictive towards midwives. So the states that have been most welcoming toward midwives include states like Washington, Oregon, and New Mexico. States that have done, uh, have been the most hostile to midwives. Many of them are in the South, North Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, and then some in the Midwest, Ohio comes to mind. We should back up a little and explain to our listeners uh, what exactly a midwife does. And depending on the state, as you mentioned, different laws, there's a different certification and licensing processes for uh, midwives before they can become part of of this, uh, this integration, this system for women as they go through their pregnancy and delivery. Right. So um, a midwife is... Um, somebody who uh, most of us think about is somebody who delivers babies or is involved in attending births. In the U.S., midwives attend around 10% of births in total every year. That doesn't mean that they deliver those babies. They they are involved in their births in some way. However, midwives um, may or may not be trained to do uh, much more. In the U.S., in every state, including Connecticut, there's a type of midwife that's the most common. That's a certified nurse midwife. And they are uh, registered nurses who then have an additional graduate degree in midwifery. And they, uh, within their scope of practice, uh, as they describe it, includes um, you know, everything from family planning to pregnancy uh, care, prenatal care, postpartum care, childbirth, also menopause care, well women care. So that's the, the entire scope of practice potentially for a nurse, a certified nurse midwife. They are licensed in every state and the rules by which they can be allowed to actually practice to their full scope of practice. That's one of the things that varies widely from state to state. There are other kinds of midwives that are um, generally known as direct entry midwives, and they usually don't have the same level of nursing training, medical training. Uh, sometimes some one class is known as certified professional midwives. There's others called, quote, certified midwives or lay midwives. It's very confusing. As a number of people I talked to acknowledged, and the main thing about these midwives is that they have different levels 
levels of training, which isn't to say that their training is necessarily bad. It's just different. And they are much less likely to be licensed by states. And they are also um, often associated with out-of-hospital births, home births, or birthing center births. On the phone with me is Nina Martin, who covers gender and sexuality for pro for ProPublica. Uh, the latest story that she's done is looking at a study that uh, rates and looks at the laws found in uh, many different states about how a larger role for midwives could improve uh, deficient U.S. care for mothers and babies. Something you said, Nina, that I wanted to go back to uh, in terms of uh, in the United States, uh, 10% of births are attended to by uh, midwives. In Great Britain, you write that midwives deliver half of all babies, and then you go on to talk about some other European countries. Let's talk about the historical context surrounding uh, you know, when mi- midwives were embraced in this country, and then what changed? Well, midwives were embraced in this country, um, you know, throughout much of the 19th century. Um, Midwives delivered most babies in the U.S. as they did in every other country, as they have throughout human history. Um, What happened in the 19th century is that uh, in the late 19th century was this move toward the professionalization of medicine. And this was, you know, in doctors' groups, the American Medical Association um, notably began pushing for a monopoly over all kinds of uh, lay practitioners' care, um, and especially obstetrics care. One of the things that happened was that um, physicians, you know, argued that birth was a process that required scientific knowledge and hospital equipment, that it was a, um, quote-unquote, pathologic process, meaning that bad things happened as opposed to a physiological condition, which is what midwives argued then and now, which is that it's a natural function and doesn't necessarily require lots and lots of intervention for most normal pregnancies. The thing that overlaid the U.S. and that was different than in other European countries is that by the late 19th century, um, early 20th century in this country, most midwives were either immigrants um, who brought, you know, who spoke different languages, brought their own cultural uh, ideas and and practices, or they were black. In the South, these blacks were known commonly as granny midwives. So there was definitely an element of racism and uh, overlaid on sort of the medical objections that doctors had. And so that's one of the things that was, that, that really is different in the U.S. There were parts of the U.S. that uh, where midwives continued to be in use more than in other parts. So they were largely wiped out um, in the East and in the and in the South. In places in the West, Washington State, for example, which rates at the top of integration, uh, New Mexico is, is similar. Midwives didn't entirely go away. Those were very rural uh, states. There, there were fewer hospitals. There were fewer options for women there in terms of doctors. And so midwives were always considered to be essential, and they were always better. They remained better integrated than in the East and the South. I want to thank Nina Martin, who covers gender and sexuality for ProPublica. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. You can learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live. As always, thanks for listening.